0: Hello, everyone. I mentioned in a video a few days ago that I'm beginning this new series on YouTube that I'm calling Death and Afterlife in the Ancient Western World. I will, towards the end, take it up to some of our modern times, but it's primarily my field, which is Ancient Mediterranean Studies and Ancient Near East in terms of the Hebrew Bible so here's what i have in mind covering today i want to do ancient hebrew ideas of death and afterlife then i want to do uh babylonian ideas gilgamesh homer and ancient greek ideas Uh, ancient egyptian ideas the book of the dead plato and hellenistic dualism the emerging ideas of resurrection of the dead when that began to start Uh, as various Jewish groups begin to talk about whether those who are buried in the tombs or gone to the dust can somehow be revived can these bones live I guess is the way to discuss it from a biblical point of view and then I'll go to early Christianity Jesus and Paul particularly on resurrection of the dead talk about eschatology remember I introduce this article that we'll be using in the early part of some of these topics. You can download this free in the description. It's the article I wrote years ago in the 1980s. Morton Smith and Joseph Hoffman did this volume. I've got it right here. What the Bible really says about death, afterlife, and the future and this is a chapter in that, and you can get that chapter, and it'll guide you into some of the things that I'm covering. I'll just give a kind of an overview. So when we get to the basically views of resurrects and the dead and eschatology, which is the view of the future, that's also part of this article, what the Bible really says about the future. So it's the future of an individual human being, as well as the future of the world or the cosmos which we call eschatology the last things literally which is a view of christians jews and muslims that there are two ages uh, there's this age and the age to come this world and the world to come and this would be considering it horizontally not so much vertically anyway then I want to look at classic Jewish Christian and Islamic views of death and afterlife and finally and this is not the ancient world scientific views of death and the mind-body problem so there's a lot to cover it's going to be very interesting I think and I'll just do it informally I've got slides and notes that I'll be giving you along the way so let's get started with the ancient Hebrew I'm going to share the screen here with some slides and let me just kind of clear everything where I can see what you're seeing this is a PDF so that I can stretch it and go in and out and so forth so first cos and cosmology uh cosmology I think people are more familiar with is the idea of the structure of the world let's just call it or the universe in the ancient Hebrews they see the stars and the sun and the moon as above them but essentially the earth is the place to be the earth is the world so it's not really the idea of a universe in terms of solar systems and galaxies of course which they knew nothing about but thought of as stars above from their human point of view which is true throughout the ancient world so cosmology is how is that set up? And throughout the ancient Near East, uh, the Hebrew Bible comes from the ancient Near East, and even into the Greek world when we do Homer and move on down to Plato. You'll see it's essentially the same kind of structure in terms of the cosmos with different tales of creation and how things came to be. Cosmogony is essentially uh, the cause of it the genesis of it how did it all get started what's behind it so that's typically dealing with the idea of the gods or God somehow creating or bringing about the world here's a nice little uh schematic uh, of ancient Hebrew cosmology it's pretty different from Mars I think you can see my cursor here basically the earth is a flat disk it's got waters on it lakes and rivers and oceans and so forth but the major oceans and water are all around it they're seen as sort of like the edge of the earth like if you sailed off to the edge of the ocean you would presumably drop off so it is a flat disc and above are the floodgates of what's called the firmament in English and there are waters above that and then there are different kinds of gates they can open and when these gates open you have floods coming down and rain coming down this is particularly evident in uh, Genesis 6 when you have the story of Noah and the great flood and then you have the sky so in Genesis 1 the creation of the earth and the sky is essentially the flat disc ordering that and then the sky the sun the moon the stars are all under the dome this is very visual if you go out on a dark night away from city lights which is hard to do today you can look up and you can see this visually you don't have to experiment or guess about it there's the dome of heaven very clearly and you see the uh, stars and sometimes the moon and then in the morning you begin to see the sun coming over and lighting everything up and above that is the firmament, and then uh, this is the world, the earth, or the land, really, as it's called in the Hebrew Bible, and then Sheol, which is below the earth, it's the world of the dead, and then there are columns that the earth rests upon, and then you have this endless question of, well, what are the columns resting on, and so forth, and you know about the infinite number of turtles and all of that in some of the mythology. But anyway, one of the things to notice here is heaven is the dwelling of God and the angels. This is ancient Hebrew or the Old Testament. I'm going to call it the Hebrew Bible. Here's another view that's pretty similar. Uh, You can see here you've got God, the heaven of heavens. So there's the heaven and then the heaven of heavens. Waters above the firmament. This is drawn just a little bit Differently, and it's got some explanations here that I won't read, but uh, you can watch this and stop the video if you want and zoom in and read it if you care to. But it's basically explaining the vault of heaven, the sky below, the sun, moon, and the stars, the earth, and then Shio down below. So, because we're doing death and afterlife, we're going to particularly talk about Shio. Shio basically is the idea of uh, what is it. Uh, it when somebody dies the body goes back to the dust but there's this perception that humans have had from time immemorial as we say that something has somehow left Uh, this is a conceptualization of us thinking about death I've been with a couple of people when they died at the moment of death in my life some of you maybe have and it is like the lights go out something happens uh eyes are often still open and it's like you flipped a switch and the body shuts down consciousness shuts down uh after a few minutes it's very clear that the person has gone and that's what we say he has passed or she has passed this person has gone this is a very ancient conception You know, before I get into this, I want to tell you about a video I saw years ago with Jane Goodall. Some of you probably seen it. It was probably on National Geographic or PBS or one of those stations that she's been on over the years. And her chimps in Africa and how there was the death of a mother chimp. And I'll never forget this. And uh, the mother is dead on the banks of a river and the little chimp who's a child is climbing all over the body and poking at it and shaking it and biting it and pulling on it trying to get the mother who's dead to respond and finally the chimp just walks away so primates even higher primates gorillas chimps and so forth uh they don't bury their dead and so what happens to the body uh predators will come uh it could fall into the river uh, essentially finally you just face it but humans from a very early time I think it goes back at least uh, I, I don't remember the exact years but thousands of years 10 15 20,000 years you have these various cave paintings and we've all heard of those and read of them I just haven't looked it up recently in terms of the latest discovery and what's the oldest cave art in the world but we think some of the cave art might be depicting something like a soul leaving the body or some belief that the person has departed and now we've got the body so the question is what do you do with the body and traditionally it's either cremation or burial and burial is the most common in the west in the ancient period so there's the cosmos let's go ahead And in terms of the Hebrew Bible, everybody knows Genesis 1-1. Many people would know it by heart. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. The problem is that's a mistranslation. It's a really bad translation. Forget the period. It's actually a temporal phrase. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, they were empty and chaotic tohu va bohu in Hebrew, waste and void, waste chaotic, void empty. In other words, it's talking about the land and the sky, literally. And in my translation, I think I've got a copy right here uh, of Genesis, I bring that out. Here I put heavens and earth because I wanted people to remember the familiarity with the verse they have in their head. But in the uh, transparent English version of Genesis I say the earth in the sky and you saw in those drawings it is the earth in the sky so what it's saying is what was it like on that disc that we call the earth when God began to create or to engineer you might say today to order things it has to do with ordering it was chaotic and empty there's no structure or form. Uh, maybe something like the surface of the moon, as it seems to appear to us. That's our closest uh, heavenly body that we can see up close and even have traveled to. And uh, empty and chaotic. Uh, asteroids and meter, meteors hit, and you've got all the craters and pockmarks. But the Earth is seen in contrast to that, that it has been beautifully ordered. In the book of Genesis chapter one through verse, uh, through chapter two, the first few verses, you've got the creation hymn as it's called. So creation is probably a misnomer uh, to imply something from nothing. This verse is not about something from nothing. That's more of a philosophical idea. So when God began, now God is the Hebrew word, as I put here, Elohim. And Elohim comes from El uh the basically the idea of a force or a god it was used in the ancient Near East for deities and elohim is the plural i like to uh say that it means something like uh just to make it clear the the force of all forces and there's the plurality of l El is elohim and yet the verb is singular the verb uh began to create is singular so when god began to create the sky and the earth to work on it to order it it was empty and chaotic so remember that the word l so and whenever you see God in chapter one of Genesis it is Elohim so God Elohim singular verse 27 created humankind Adam Adam and that's the word for humankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created he, him, male and female, he created them. Now, I'm still using the standard translation, but in the transparent English version of Genesis, which uh, you might enjoy reading throughout, I translate this, uh, this idea of Adam as basically red dirt or Soil man, or something like that. I think I use soil man as I recall, because dirt implies maybe filth in English sometimes. So, Adama is from, it actually is the word for red. And then, red soil is is called Adama, the earth, the soil, the surface of the earth is called Adama, soil, basically. And so, he creates soil man or soil kind. A dirt kind, if you prefer. But that dirt creature of the dust is in his image. In the image of the Elohim, he created him, male and female, he created them. So this is the first account of creation. You have a second account in Genesis 2. Uh, I think it starts about verse 4 on through the end of chapter 3, which we'll talk about a bit. Okay, then in verse 24. Elohim said, the force of all forces, let the earth bring forth living creatures. There the Hebrew word is important, nefesh. Nefesh means living breathers, and that's how I translated it in my version. It literally refers to the throat. You can have a dead nefesh, means it was a living breather, but now it's not breathing, so it's a dead nefesh, and that's even used in the Hebrew Bible in the book of Numbers. So living creatures are anything that breathes oxygen and lives on oxygen, in contrast to uh, the plants that are also created. They're according to their types, cattle, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their types. So it includes insects and all kinds of what are called creeping things and snakes and every kind of thing like that. So they're called living breathers. Now, here's what's interesting. This is why the Hebrew is important. If you want to understand death and afterlife, you have to first understand, in the Hebrew view at least, what is a human being? And what a human being is, is a living creature. Notice chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God, and here you have a new idea of God being named this comes much much later in Hebrew tradition the older view of God is El or El Elyon God most high that's the kind of thing you find like in the book of Genesis I think it's chapter 14 with Melchizedek sometimes pronounced more often Melchizedek Melchizedek the king of righteousness this mysterious figure that appears and He When he prays, he says, blessed are you, El Elyon, God most high. So this idea of God most high, El Elyon, is used also in the Hebrew Bible. But to put it simply, if you name the force of all forces that ordered the heavens and the earth, or the sky and the earth, what would you name it? And there you get the idea of what's translated in English, Lord scholars usually prefer the word Yahweh you're going to see that uh quite often Yahweh which is basically a form of the verb to be it's the imperfect third person singular so the one uh who will be so to speak uh, anyway down here I explain Yahweh you can break it down into the idea of the one who will be and is and was When Moses asks about the name in the book of Exodus, uh, what's your name? What should I call you? Uh, Literally, it's uh, I will be, ehie, I will be. That's the imperfect, ehie, I will be what I will be, meaning process or becoming, the becoming one, the unfolding one. Uh, Anything ordered below the heavens and the earth has a beginning and an end. There's God begins it and begins to order it. So human beings are created or formed or shaped in the image of God, as you see here. This is a different verb, formed. It's the idea of uh, literally like clay shaping it or forming Adam, uh, the man or the soil creature from the dust of the ground. So humorous way i help students uh try to remember this is just to say real fast will is was will is was in hebrew liturgy you have who yahie who Hoveh, and who haya the one who will be the one who is and the one who was so will is was is one way of but it's the idea of being uh so the living one the being one Uh, Lord is really a poor translation. I would never use it. Uh, I think it's very confusing to people because you got, for Christians, the Lord Jesus. People talk about the Lord all the time, and you're not sure, you know, who do they mean? Do they mean the God of the Hebrew Bible? Do they mean Jesus? Do they mean both? And then you get the Trinity and all kinds of other things. So probably it's better to use either Yahweh or Yahweh if you want to use the old English term Yehovah does have the sound of Ye, Ye, Yeh, 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 Ho, and Haya, uh, Va, Yehovah, Yehovah or Yehoah, doesn't really matter to me how somebody says it as much as getting the idea. So the ever-living one, the eternal one, the force of all forces, that puts it together for you forms a soil creature dust to the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life okay a lot of people read this as some kind of a soul but it's not in the hebrew bible this phrase which is the 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 hebrew word nishmat i didn't put it because it, we don't need to Uh, worry about it too much but it's used of animals as well Uh, the living creatures all also have the breath of life so the breath of life is the idea of breathing life a living breather has the breath of life because it's breathing and man the human became a living creature notice that's nephesh just like here it's the same word so human beings the dirt humans that we are according to genesis we are breathing soil creatures we are nefesh kaya okay so that kind of idea of the human being helps us to understand the Hebrew view of death and afterlife so here we have in chapter 2 verse 8 and the Lord God the the eternal God Yahweh Elohim planted a garden in eden it's often called the garden of eden but eden is actually a region so within that region where the formation of these creatures uh, was carried out there's a garden in the east in the east meaning in the east of eden and there he put the man that is the adam the dirt creature whom he had formed And out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here we get into what we would call Hebrew mythology. I mean, some people want to take some of this literally. That's up to them. But I'm more interested in what the meaning of the terms or the ideas are here. And tree of life is very clear. If you eat of the tree of life, you live Forever. You have eternal life as the ever-living one. Now, you wouldn't exist in the past, but you would get eternal life as a gift. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the traditional translation. A better translation is just good and bad. Tov in Hebrew is good and ra is bad. It's just the opposite sides of a coin. On that, that tree is the acquaintance with or intimacy with or knowledge of both good and bad. In other words, a kind of moral accountability that, you know, we say today, you know right from wrong at a certain age, okay? Now, people have understood this as a fall. So I'm going to go a little beyond death and afterlife here because you've got to understand the background to understand this so here we have Genesis two sixteen, just a little further and we've got the Lord God Yahweh Elohim commanded the human the Adam the soil man saying you may freely eat of every tree of the garden all those trees but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil the acquaintance it's actually used for later Adam knows his wife right sexual intercourse becomes acquainted with so the tree of knowing good and evil of being acquainted with it actually choosing it one way or the other you shall not eat stay away from that for in the day that you eat it you will die so here we go death and afterlife right not afterlife yet but death you will die and literally it says you will surely die I don't use my translation in this uh these slides because i want you to be familiar with the language and not confuse people but i want to explain it's the idea that you will absolutely die but did they die the day they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil i mean they didn't drop dead that that's not the story most people know the story i've got it on the cover of my book there they are and i think they're going to go for the fruit right there and they live to tell about it they're naked and so forth now genesis 3 verse 1 now the serpent uh again that's the traditional translation people often just go ahead and put satan here but it's actually the nakash it's a different hebrew word uh nakash can mean brass or shining uh so i even like the idea of the shining one the the shining one he 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 is a creature was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God, did the Elohim, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Notice the subtlety here, because obviously God didn't say that. And you, the reader, are supposed to go along with it and go, oh, no, God didn't say that. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, preachers for years have pointed out, he didn't say don't touch it. She's adding to the word of God here. But I think the idea here, he says, don't eat it. Uh, You know, it's not like a literal tape recorder of what was said. The idea is just stay away from it. Don't eat it. Don't even touch it. It's danger what we tell our kids about hot stoves, basically. But the serpent said to the woman, the nakash, you will not die. Whoa, here we go. You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like the Elohim. You'll be like Elohim. You'll be like the force of all forces, knowing good and evil. So this is often interpreted as a fall. You know how many times have you heard the fall of man the fall of humans as in adam we all sinned or something like that you even get that in the apostle paul that's not in this text there's nothing about falling notice what is the knowledge of good and evil and what does it have to do with mortality and death we only have one other text in the entire hebrew bible that uses this phrase and gives us an insight into what it means in the ancient cultural context in which it's used and so instead of going off on all kinds of particular Christian theology about original sin and in Adam's fall we sinned all remember that I think that's in the catechism let's go to the only definition we really have of another use of it and that's Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1 verse 39 where Moses is talking to the nation of Israel hundreds of years after the time of Adam and Eve in the account, and he talks about the little children, or just your children, who do not yet have the knowledge of good and evil. We're the, they're not in the Garden of Eden, so what is this talking about? It tells us clearly that the knowledge of good and evil is to come of age and to begin going your own way and choosing good or evil depending on your own choice in other words often we call this a free moral agent become you, you become accountable every culture has this it's usually associated with puberty most people know in Judaism uh it's around age 13 bar mitzvah bat mitzvah that idea but you find it in most cultures it's when people are held to be responsible now in this text there's a lot of liberality. So if any of you have kids below the age of 20, uh, they're kind of still in Eden, you give them more of a chance uh, because he actually says below the age of 20 in this actual text. But the idea, the word here actually implies little children. Okay, so keep that in mind because the idea would be that they are denied access to the tree of life. So in that sense, they die, it doesn't mean they drop dead it means they no longer have a way to the tree of life and we'll get to that in a minute so uh coming of age uh at least can be understood I think as uh, something that is an inevitable nobody wants to remain naked and unashamed so to speak meaning non-sexual in the, their Garden of Eden that would be your childhood But as you grow up and you become aware of yourself as an adult or becoming an adult, an adolescent, we call it adolescent, and you begin to make your own choices, you become this free moral agent and you literally can chart your own way. You can do absolutely anything within your mental and physical power, which is about the scariest thing I think I could ever think about. Uh, creatures running around doing whatever they want especially with the capacity that human beings have for reasoning and thinking and communicating but anyway back to the story genesis three twenty-two. then the lord god said or yahweh elohim behold the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil so the gods and the angels in the bible they're mature free moral agent agents I say God uh one of us and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever and that sentence isn't even finished it's more of it's got this feeling of like oh no oh no you know he's become like one of us uh we got to put him out of the garden Then Yahweh Elohim sent him forth from the garden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, cherubim, these angelic beings, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So essentially, this is a story of how the first two human beings were naked and unashamed. They ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they then were expelled from the garden and could no longer go into eden where you would receive the tree of life so the hebrews idea is that humans could have the potential for eternal life they could potentially even in the future have the tree of life as you see in the christian new testament you find in the book of revelation in the very last chapters in the new creation you have access to the tree of life so you get immortality we're going to see some parallels with gilgamesh as well when we do the babylonian traditions so that's the genesis story humans are made of dust dust you are and to dust you will return so that's the hebrew view of life and it's pretty consistent all the way through so here is our uh, chart again our cosmology and please notice here, in Psalm 115, 17, you've got the tripartite division, and humans are told their place. The heavens are the Lord's, that's Yahweh again. The heavens belong to will is was, but the earth he's given to the sons of men, children of men is basically the idea, human beings. The dead do not praise Yahweh, nor do any that go down into silence. The word there used is silence, but we th- but it means Shio, as you'll see. But we, the living, will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So this tripartite division, heavens belong to gods or God. Angels are called gods. That's why I use the plural. It actually means ones who have eternal life. So uh, powerful ones that are not mortal made of dust, but are spirit made of spirit. God is a spirit in the Hebrew Bible. From this time forth and forevermore. So the earth is the human realm and Sheol is the realm of death. So what is the ancient concept of Sheol? Uh, You'll begin to collect some vocabulary here, which I want you to do. Psalm 88 is very helpful. This is consistent throughout the Hebrew Bible. Um, It's a prayer of a dying man. Let's read it together. For my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. This is when you feel like you're going to die. I'm reckoned among those who go down to the pit. So we've already seen silence now we have the pit it's literally seen as you know bodies are put into holes in the ground or into caves or pits but metaphorically this is the pit under the earth for all the dead to dwell i'm reckoned among those who get out of the pit i'm a man who has no strength like one forsaken among the dead like the slain that lie in the grave like those whom you remember no more For they are cut off from your hand you have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep so i underline some of the key words sheo pit grave depths of the pit again regions dark and deep so this is sheo in the hebrew bible now when people think about the bible they think of the immortal soul they think of eternal life and you get this mistranslation god breathes into adam the breath of life and you know what the King James says and man became a living soul well it's not a living soul the way people think of soul as some immortal spirit and humans became living breathers meaning they began breathing they were alive rather than dead and when you're dead you're a dead breather and your body goes back to the dust and here's our skeleton back here again that's that's what happens to you you go back to the dust, dust you are, and to dust you will return. So that's the concept of shio in the Hebrew Bible. Now, I want to close with the case of Job, which is very interesting, because Job is one of the texts in the Hebrew Bible that stands out. You might know the story of Job. Here he is in this wonderful drawing, he's emaciated and he has sores and boils all over his body and his three friends come to console him but what they all say is you must have done something wrong you must have sinned somehow because God is just and he would not have inflicted this upon you unless you were guilty and maybe you're even guilty of saying you're not guilty of anything but Job maintains his righteousness his integrity. You know, the old uh, saying, uh, what about when bad things happen to good people? You know, the earth is not a nice place to be in terms of a world of the knowledge of good and evil. But here it's Job, God allowing Satan in the story to afflict Job. At least that's in the version we have now that's been edited a few times. But either way, Job is undergoing this affliction. And he. the question is, why would God allow this? And because of Job's sufferings, he basically says he wishes he was dead. Now, notice how he describes being dead. He's an ancient Hebrew in the the story, and he understands what it is to be dead. And it's not what people later think who believe in a full and amazing afterlife, whether immortal, soul, resurrection of the dead, or anything of that sort job 3 verse 11 why did i not die at birth and come forth from the womb and expire for then i should have lain down and been quiet remember silence i should have slept this is the primary image in the hebrew bible of the dead you rest you sleep then i should have been at rest with Kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, the mighty ones, princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as an untimely hidden birth as infants that never seen, who never see the light? Why wasn't I a miscarriage? In other words, there, the wicked cease from troubling there, the weary are at rest there, the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Death ends all attachments to the world. When you die, look at the words here. You lay down, you're quiet, you sleep, you're at rest. And whatever your state of life was, whether you were rich and powerful with untold wealth, and right next to you, so to speak, In Sheol, which holds the slain of the world, the dead of the world, are laborers that worked and were weary, slaves, prisoners, everybody's there together. There's no discrimination. As Job says at one point, naked, I came from the womb and naked, I will depart this world from womb to tomb, as we say. Now, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 19, for the fate of humans and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. That's what we saw in Genesis. Nefesh kaya, living breather. It's the same breath, the breath of life. And humans, man, has no advantage over the beast, for all is emptiness, literally. All is futile. For all go to one place, all are from the dust and all turn to dust again this is the hebrew view of death now notice i didn't say it's the hebrew view of afterlife we're going to get to that but it takes a while here is the first hint not of faith in it but like shouldn't it be not could it be but should it be job is talking about human beings man lies this is right after he's talking about uh, this idea of why did I not die at birth and this is later in chapter 14 man dies and is laid low man breathes his last and where is he as waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up so humans lie down and rise not again till the heavens are no more he will not awake or be aroused out of his sleep. So this is the Hebrew view of death. All go to Sheol. Moses, the meekest man on the earth, no prophet like Moses, he's buried, he's dead. Abraham dies and is buried and buries all of his family. All the great figures of the Hebrew Bible, they die. And uh, so how is uh, Sheol, or the state of the dead, characterized? Silent, dark, deep, pit, grave, forsaken, asleep, at rest, quiet, awaking no more, everyone there, rich, poor, small, great. It is not hell, torture, or punishment. One of the great mistranslations of the King James has to do with language in 1611. Used to put your potatoes in hell, in hull is the idea, it's not a, it's a pit, it's like a cellar, right, and so that word hell began to be used for hell fire, but also for Sheol, and so you read along, and people are buried, and they go to Sheol, and you go, they went to hell, and uh, later we'll straighten all that out, because you've also got a Greek word, Hades, and so forth, so here's the question that I'm going to leave you with, As far as the future of the world, is it an endless cycle of birth and death? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. There's no remembrance of former things. Think about that. Most of the people who've lived on the planet over thousands of years are gone. Few of them even have marked graves, and even if they have marked graves, I've done a bit of genealogy, and I can go back a generation or two and even found some graves of my ancestors, and I don't even have one story about them. I can see on the tombstone maybe the dates, maybe where they lived, and sometimes you get a teeny little story that gets passed down. I mean, our lives and our history are so fragile. Now in our own time with digital recordings and all kinds of written records there's much more but still I mean basically this is it there's no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to happen among those who come after essentially history passes as time passes as every second passes now I meant this to be depressing I hope it is depressing Uh, The Hebrew view of death and afterlife is depressing. It is realistic. It is, could I say, fairly scientific. Not the mythology of Sheol, but is the experience of all living breathers. When they die, the body decays and the spirit dissipates, whatever it was, the life spirit. It, It can't be restored. It can't be brought back. Once the cells begin to deteriorate, it's gone. So that is the Hebrew view. Now, is there are there other things in the Hebrew Bible? We're going to cover that because there does emerge a response to this negative view, but it takes a while and it's not in Genesis, it's nowhere in the Torah. It's not in the early books of the Hebrew Bible. In fact, the earliest place you begin to even get a hint of it is in the book of Isaiah, and that's in a section of Isaiah that we think is even after Isaiah's time. It's called the Isaiah Apocalypse, Isaiah 24, 25, and 26, maybe even 27, but particularly 24 and 25. You get a hint, and then the book of Daniel, one of the latest books, So we're going to cover that as we go on so if you'll get this article you'll get more let me stop the share here you'll get more of what uh what i covered today more details and so forth and that is the hebrew view of death afterlife the garden of eden the tree of life and yes the tree of life is mentioned and therefore potentially could be a reality if humans could be offered it again. So that's sort of out there as a possibility in your head as you read these accounts. But in terms of any text uh, that we have in the Hebrew Bible, uh, there's there's no restoration of a Garden of Eden. And in fact, in the book of Isaiah, in the new heavens and new earth, which everybody thinks, well, that'll be like Eden, right? Well, not in the Hebrew Bible, read it it's in Isaiah 65, going into 66, the description, but particularly 65, and it talks about uh, people will live to be 100 years old, uh, but they will die, there's still death, and so this idea of eternal life, immortalization, divination, resurrection of the dead, all these things come later, we're going to trace when they come in, how they come in, from whence they come in. But before we do that, I'm going to leave you with that Hebrew Bible, and we're then going to go to ancient Babylonian views and then ancient Greek views. So we want to stay with the ancient world, uh, the sort of uh, second millennium, first millennium BCE material first, so that we can compare it then to the changes and shifts that begin to take place primarily in the Hellenistic world and uh basically from Plato on Plato's a good marker but it even starts earlier than Plato and also in the Hebrew Bible we'll begin to trace ideas of resurrection of the dead and what that really means can these bones live so thank you, everybody. I hope you really benefit from this series, and I'm uh, looking forward to producing these. We'll we'll make a couple a week for a while and give everybody a chance to study and absorb them. So download that article and uh, look forward to uh, seeing you again soon. Take care.